Okay, Mr. Spurgeon. He was born June 19th, 1834 in Suffolk, England. He was one of 17 wow. children. Wow. Come on now. Wow. Poor mama. Poor mama. Yeah. He died January 31st, 1892 at the ripe old age of 57, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in France. He was trying to recover. Uh, he was very sick a lot of his life. And uh, what finally got him was gout and Bright's disease. Anybody know what Bright's disease is? Kidneys. Kidneys, yes. It's a form of kidney disease. On his grave, it's actually more of a tomb, there is a quote from our friend William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood. The fourth verse says, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That is on his grave. When he died, over 60,000 people paid their respects wow. at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And as his hearse was uh, gone by uh, to, the, to the graveyard, over 100,000 people, they estimate, lined the streets as he went to his final rest. So was his church the first megachurch? Well, Acts was probably the first megachurch. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. This was bigger. His wasn't bigger? Oh. Uh, yeah, well, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he was best known as a preacher and a pastor, but many, many other things. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He was mm -hmm. called the People's Preachers. He was called lots of things. So, so as far as his background, sorry for that message. I could keep making it go away, but it'll just come back. Oh, there's my remote. In moments. There it is. And now it's going to come back. Maybe not. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so she turned your head. I did. It was gone the whole time last time. Um, so some background and some cultural context I think is necessary. This was the time, the, the 1800s, mm -hmm. uh, massive growth. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was hitting England. Uh, one author wrote, by the time he died, light bulbs would replace gas lamps, mm -hmm. engines would replace animals, many, many huge uh, medical advances like the syringe and various medications like iodine that it seemed basic to us but were saving lives. Life ex expectancy then increased. Uh, yet, ironically, it was also the time of disease. In 1854, cholera outbreak killed over 10,000 people. Mm. Yeah. Most likely due to the fact that the River Thames was full of raw sewage. Mm -hmm. So they kind of switched from the outhouse kind of mentality to what they thought was plumbing, but their idea of plumbing was to just dump everything into the River Thames. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ew. Where they got their drinking water from. Exactly. Where they got their drinking water, <laughs> which is one reason why, yeah. Yeah, why actually uh, Spurgeon escaped cholera and was able to <laughs> minister to people because he didn't drink the city water. He drank water from a spring out in the country, so kept him, kept him safe. It was a time of massive controversy. Anybody know what massive scientific publication may have hit? Origin of the Species. Oh, dang it, it says it up there? It does. <laughs> Origin of the Species by Mr. Charles Darwin in 1859. It was the time of evangelicalism, and Spurgeon was one of the people that really kind of put evangelicalism on the map and some characteristics of it. He was radically in step with the spirit of the age, but also they said he was radically out of step with it, meaning he was part, he was swept up and all that, but then he was still kind of stuck <coughs> in traditional Orthodox Christianity, which didn't go well with advances in science and other things like that. 
As far as his family, he uh, came from a long line of preachers, actually. His dad and his grandfather were both, were both preachers, but they were independent preachers. Uh, his parents had financial troubles early on. He was sent to live with his grandparents for the first year or so. And as he uh, became very close with his grandparents, his grandfather had a ton of books mm -hmm. and a lot of Puritan books. So he immersed himself in the writings of the Puritans. By the time he died, he said he read Pilgrim's Progress more than a hundred times. And he has therefore been called the last of the Puritans as well. So a lot of his theology was steeped uh, in Puritan theology early on. Eventually, he rejoined his parents in a new house. They had lots of kind of happiness, I guess you'd say, as far as material success. But he was truly unhappy in his soul. He had this feeling that he was a sinner, and he didn't know how to resolve that. Um, which is kind of a shame when you think you're growing up in a Christian house when your dad's a preacher. Uh, eventually, he did get married to Susanna Thompson for 36 years. She became an invalid uh, 12 years into their marriage. So for the majority of their marriage, he was taking care of her. Um, they had twin boys, Thomas and Charles Jr. She was unable to have any more children, uh, but Thomas and Charles would take over both the church and the orphanage, which we'll see in a moment uh, after he died. But think about that. He's from a, a, a family of 17 kids, right? So I'm sure in his mind, he's like, you know, if you come from a family of big kids, you're like, we're going to have a lot of kids. And he was like, two kids and a wife that and then couldn't bear him any more children. So that was something he kind of struggled with. And I'm sure she did as well, because I'm sure she wanted to have more kids as well. So. All right, so some background there, uh, which you can mostly read. As far as his conversion, now sometimes, right, we have these dramatic conversions. Sometimes we have not so dramatic conversions. This is kind of both. This is kind of his conversion was kind of... Um, uh, stoked in Puritanism, and he understood what he needed to do, but he had no idea how to do it. January 6th, 1850, at 15 years old, he went to a church to duck out of a blizzard, and he had heard a Methodist lay preacher in a church, and he was primed and ready to receive the gospel. The preacher spoke simply on Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Turn to me and be saved. And it was like a light bulb went off in his head. Spurgeon said, I at once saw the way of salvation. Oh, I leapt for joy at that moment. He had a mixed bag of theology growing up. Again, again, doing much to the, the Puritan influence. He was raised an independent. He went to an Anglican school. He was converted in a Methodist chapel. And he became a Baptist preacher. That's <laughs> my story. Yeah. A lot of our stories, right? He was yeah. baptized May 3rd, 1850. Why? Because he read it in the Bible and came to the conclusion that adult believer baptism was uh, what we needed to do. Somebody asked him later on in his career, can you give me a book on uh, 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 infant baptism versus adult baptism? And he said, yes, the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> womp, womp. So he saw that in Scripture and he was fully convinced that's what he needed to do. So he was baptized on his own. His mom, not so happy, he was a Baptist. His mom said, Oh, Charles, I often prayed to the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that he might make you a Baptist. <laughs> to which he replied, Spurgeon, ever witty, said, Oh, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and giving you exceedingly abundantly above what you asked for. 
<laughs> so some observations and applications from his conversion. What do we think as far as you know, knowing his background, his family life, his mixed bag of theology, his sudden conversion, his adult baptism? What things are you thinking about? What things does that make you think about? Especially encouragement for us today. We think about conversion itself. God never gives up pursuing you. Yep. God, yep. God never gives up pursuing you. Sure. Is it a one-time act, conversion? It is. Conversion, right? it is. Yeah, conversion, yeah. definitely. I got mm -hmm. worried there for a minute. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's a one-time act. It's a trick question. Yeah, well, I was, that was, it was that definitely was, a trick question. I was trying question. to figure out if it was a trick question. It is a trick question. It is. But Sorry, it is, but it's it is, too easy. It is definitely a one-time act. Yes. You saw what the Lord was doing. Right all up until <coughs> right. he was he was miserable with himself because he read the Puritans and you read the Puritans you're gonna know you're a sinner through and through right but somehow he didn't connect what did I have to do to resolve this and you see kind of the failure of his parents theology especially his dad being a pastor mm -hmm. like he never said repent and believe right so he literally had no idea like how to do that so it was torturing him he was miserable and he walked into that church in the middle of a blizzard. The guy preaches one word, and he's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> so was his dad a Presbyterian, or what was his dad? Do we know? I, they say independent. I, don't, okay. I, I didn't look to see what that translated to. So we know it wasn't <coughs> evangelical in the sense as we know it, right. right? which stresses a conversion. Yeah. Right. So it was probably more high church leaning, probably a hybrid between like Anglican and something mm -hmm. like that, that, that probably spent more time on works right as opposed to an actual experience of the new birth kind of thing yeah. which is why he was one of the kind of forefathers of evangelicalism he and just kind of put it together i had a question yeah i i heard that he was against something called baptismal regeneration <laughs> um i i can maybe guess at what that means but rather than guess well baptismal regeneration usually means like a roman catholic uh, Infant baptism, ah, where it participates. Okay. It's actually right. a work of your salvation. Right. If you've ever gone to one, depending on what how the priest says it. Right. When I was uh, at right. one of my nephews, he said, "I'm now cleansing you from original sin." Okay. And so yeah, yeah they think right. it's actually a work of regeneration or okay. contribute. Right. So in other words, the act of baptism causes your salvation. Yes. Right. Or contributes to. Or it. contributes to. Yep. It. Yeah. Very different from the Reformed view right. of infant baptism, and okay. obviously, very, that's very what I guess. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't sure I was a hundred percent. You know, that's what I, I think had. just by that. But when you say baptismal regeneration, that's what comes to mind. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, the um, uh, it reminds me of my mother always used to tell us, everything is according to God's perfect will and God's perfect yeah. timing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the timing wasn't right. Yeah. He willed it. It was going to be done, but was done on his time. Yeah. Know? Not on Spurge's time. Yeah. It was. Uh, he didn't know what to do, but uh, God didn't. God didn't move him. Yeah. God's timing. <laughs> do you want me to do it? I'll just yeah, sit, here, you just sit like back this. here and just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for the people that are taking notes. They can only go so far. Um, it's certainly interesting how he mature. You know, changed through. Yeah, um, you know yeah. his his um, sanctification. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You yeah, know? 
But also, I mean, doesn't that kind of excite you? Like you could be that last kind of link in the chain. You know, that the Lord's been preparing someone for salvation and you could just lay out the simple gospel and they could be like... like he had all this head knowledge, right? Yeah. And then it, it just didn't it didn't get, get transferred. Never to happened heart. to me, but I, I, I yeah. always hope that I'm like the last link in the chain where I just say one thing and they're like, oh, that's it! it it's mm. kind of like <laughs> a, uh, a light plug, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, that it takes a... Yeah, you got the, yeah. you're plugged into the brain, but yeah, it, it, it plug, you just plug it... it the brain right into the heart. You yeah. Know, just, just boom, and the lights come on. Yeah. That's what happened, right? Were you gonna say something? No. I was gonna. See, you, you just said you always like wish that would happen to you, but what do you, do you think that preacher really is aware, or was aware that? I I don't know. Some young man like instantly. I did like, watch you know? most of one of the movies of his life, um, and they dramatized that whole scene, and yeah. the preacher was looking right at him and saying, you look miserable, you're never going to be happy until you give your life over to Christ, so give your life over to Christ, and like the Spurgeon actor starts crying and everything, and mm -hmm. it was like, it happened, so according to the movie, he knew, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's a movie, it's got to be true. Yeah. You know what? I, I have a question for you then. How would you react in a sermon? Somebody stood right up. I want to be baptized right now. <laughs> you know, like, I, I would talk to them after the service and say, "Let's do that." Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, first of all, yes, I'd want to. But let's first find out a little bit make more. Make sure about we understand the gospel. Exactly. What you're, yeah. what you're, yeah. But what no, you're I would try. Here. I would try and capitalize on that momentum as much yeah. as I can. I, I do kind of throw that out there. I mean, the baptism services we've had, nobody's ever taken me up on that. But I'll say, anybody else? Come on, let's go. I mean, I talked to him for a couple minutes first, but what about, um, obviously God uses his word in conversion. That was the last link in the chain there was a simple verse from Isaiah. And so don't, don't underestimate the power of God's word to cut through living and active, right? Judges hearts and thoughts and motives. I can't say it often enough. Read the Puritans. <laughs> yeah. They are so deep and so profound and so amazing. Read the Puritans. Uh, if you don't know where to start, start with Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that. Um, so yeah, anything else as we're just kind of wrapping up his conversion here? Next, he was a man of tremendous capacity. By the time he was 50, he founded or was overseeing 66 organizations. One of these guys that you just read and you're just like, I do nothing. I have no life. I haven't, made, I haven't accomplished anything. This guy, 66 organizations, an orphanage, a magazine, a, a massive church, a pastor's college. He was always campaigning against injustices in society. He campaigned and fought against slavery in the United States, the opium trade, human trafficking, prostitution, all that stuff that was rampant in, in London. Massive, massive man of capacity. He wrote over 140 books just because, right? He often worked 18 hours a day. And, uh, you know, you would think that that would probably kill him, but that's not really what actually killed him. He was a man of certainly of gifted capacity for sure, but he did have a, a, a theology and a management to it. Uh, just some selections. Um, no one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. 
I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There is the weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trowel, that's his magazine, to be edited. Do you know where that comes from, the sword and the trowel? Remember Nehemiah? Anybody? Yeah, you're oh, chairs yes. and oh, yeah, yeah. 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 It worked building with one hand and the other. Yeah. 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 To be yeah. edited, and besides all that, a weekly oh. average of, get this, of 500 letters to be answered. Wow. I don't like answering emails. This guy's yeah. writing 500 yeah. letters. Wow. This, however, is only half Didn't my you duty. For there are innumerable churches established by my friends with the affairs in which I'm closely connected to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly referred to me. So he was a man who had a, a massive capacity, but he also said this. He was asked, how do you manage to do the work of two men in a single day? And he said, you've forgotten that there are two of us. Oh. Meaning himself and the Holy Spirit. It just wasn't us. So I, I thought of... Uh, Colossians 1.28, right, that we labor and toil and strive with all of his energy, not our own energy. But he was also very, very strict about keeping a Sabbath day. So he would work when it was time to work, but he also knew the value of rest and unplugging as much as you could unplug in the 1800s, right? You really could. You just get on a horse and ride off. So he would love to go into uh, the woods. He would love to go... Uh, if he could get by the ocean somehow, all of that, he felt like a, I think he had a quote about a stiff breeze of ocean air is just as much good as medicine or something like that. So he definitely managed his time well, but he worked very, 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 very hard. Thoughts, observations, applications. I'm almost hesitant to say, but is this the, the well, I know it's not the normal capacity of a normal pastor, but <laughs> I hope you would agree with that. <laughs> You've got some catching up on book writing to do. Yeah, holy moly. <laughs> dissertation, that's about ready to kill me. 440 books. Whew. I mean, they couldn't have been very big books. Yeah. Because yeah. I was only alive 57 years. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. true. I do have one teeny book that I'll read from in a little bit, but like this is, this is, you know, he wrote a lot, but. I don't think his sermons were that long either. Mm. I think most of his sermons were on the shorter side, but I'm sure he could get going. Were his the ones that were sold for a penny apiece? Yeah. Yeah, they published them, right? Like yeah, they over 25,000 copies. copies a year. They yeah. Sell. yeah. What does that say about the value of working hard, though, especially for the kingdom? Is that mm. something we should emulate? Is that something good, necessarily? I mean, working and all that? I would say yes. Yeah? Yeah. I would too. I think you gotta I think you gotta balance it. Right. But sure. That's definitely I think something. it depends on what God's calling you to, too. I yeah. mean, I think you definitely felt called by God to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So And his theology too. Um <laughs> Rhoda's making jokes on our text message. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was a large man, Rhoda, so he had extra capacity. <laughs> was that right? No, Rhoda. <laughs> um, you know, what about the theology that's intermingled in there where, where he said it wasn't just me? You know, most human beings, we take everything on ourselves, don't we? Yeah. 
Do we, we actually the, think? We want the credit, yeah. We want the credit, or we think, you know, I certainly have a tendency, just sharing special feelings, to just head down. If there's a lot to do, that's just it. Just white knuckle it, head down, and I can do it. How often do I even think, like, stop, pray, mm -hmm. realize that it's the Holy Spirit empowering me to do these things, oh, that are for His church and for His glory anyway, right? It's, it's convicting to think about that, that Spurgeon thought like that. And that goes for all of us, right? We have the Holy Spirit living inside us. It's not just us. He's empowering us to do what He's called us to do. I usually think about it when I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> Sometimes God brings things, things in our lives to slow us down. Yeah. Yeah, and he certainly had his... Uh, um, we'll go over that in a, in a little bit, but he certainly had things that slowed him down for sure. So, of course, he was definitely known for his preaching. Um, he was uh, at, at a local church after conversion. He started teaching Sunday school, and he gained a reputation as a very clear teacher. And as a matter of fact, they say that a lot of adults went to the children's Sunday school class because they knew that uh, Mr. Spurgeon taught and taught very well. His first sermon was preached at a farmer's cottage probably around the age of 16. And at the age of 17, he got a letter, which he thought was a mistake, to pastor a congregational church in Water Beach. And so he uh, actually, uh, yeah, at 17 years old, wow. started to a small, pastoring a small country church in Water Beach. And two years later, I think, I'm sorry, this is where the letter came from. So he's been pastoring this tiny church. He gets this letter from the New Park Street Chapel in London that asked, would you come and candidate for us? And he was like, this must be a mistake not me like I'm you know 19 years old and he did and he got hired and that was 1854 and that's what became the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, in London and he spent close to 40 years there he arrived in London he hated it he thought the disease he thought it was the city of death he thought it smelled which it did mm. total culture shock from the country it was full of sin on the one hand and <coughs> smelliness and all that stuff. And then you'd see the rich people walk by. And he said he hated their perfume because you could just smell it coming from a mile away. But most of all, perhaps, it was the orphans that bothered him. He just saw so many orphans kind of being cast aside in the city. But he was pretty miserable his first years in London. The church eventually changed its name to the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tabernacle when they built a new building, which I thought was pretty funny because, so in this building, when they were in the new Park uh, Street Chapel, they were reaching capacity, they needed to build, and the deacon said no. He, they refused to budge on the issue. And uh, he, he was preaching on the walls of Jericho, and they say he turned around to the wall behind the pulpit and said, the Lord knocked down the walls of Jericho, the Lord is gonna knock down this wall as well. And the deacons realized he was serious about it, and he finally, they finally caved in. So they, they started their Nehemiah fund of their own, and they built another church. But their temporary spot while the construction was happening was Exeter Hall, and that's where it was much more capacity. So crowds swelled at Exeter Hall. It was right in the middle of downtown, so it said the streets would be clogged with people just trying to get in to hear him preach. When he moved back in, he grew his church to incredible size. He was the most popular preacher of his day. Again, 
best known as the Prince of Preachers. But just a little bit of the character of his preaching and the theology of his preaching, it was plain and it was simply Christocentric. Do we know what we mean by Christocentric? Centered on Christ. There we go. Centered <laughs> on Christ. He was known as a master of clarity and simplicity. And so that's what I really think caught on, was people actually understood what he was preaching, as opposed to the high church liturgy or stuff like that where people just they didn't really get it. And maybe that was because of his humble beginnings, right? The Puritans were obviously very clear and pure and powerful. And then preaching to farmers in, mm-hmm. their, in their houses, right? They don't understand. But he had to have such simple and powerful language with them. One quote, he said, Preach that which will enable men to face death without fear, and you will preach nothing but the old gospel. So he centered his, his preaching on Jesus Christ and the gospel. He made clear that he never found a text that did not have a road to Christ. And that were he to find such a text, he said he would make a road going over the hedge and the ditch to get to my master. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was one of the first guys, you know, except for like reformers or stuff, but in the, in the modern period who said, no, every scripture is about Jesus Christ somehow. It points to Jesus somehow. He preached more than 600 times before he was 20. He typically preached to over 6,000 people a Sunday. One time he preached to over 23,000. Before electricity, before PA systems. Before deodorant. Before air air conditioning in smelly London, right? (coughs) His sermons sold 25,000 copies a week in many languages. So they printed them up and they sold them, right? And he grew his church from 232 members to well over 5,000 members, and then probably 10,000 more attenders that would just come in. But more than anything, Mr. Spurgeon was a biblical preacher. If I read a little bit from Mr. Piper's account. Um, where do I want to read this to? Middle. These, are, these words are God's. Thou book of vast authority, thou art a proclamation from the emperor of heaven. Far be it from me to exercise my reason in contradicting thee. This is the book untainted by any error, but it is pure, unalloyed, perfect truth. Why? Because God wrote it. So he was firmly, firmly um, biblical, and he did not deviate from the word of God in his sermons. And I think that was a big deal too. I mean, truly was an expositional preacher, you know, in the 1800s. And obviously believed in the inerrancy of scripture. Absolutely, yep. Inerrancy was kind of through and through everything that he had, so. What do you think the difference in the culture was that the gospel was so much more popular? I think it's because it was not being preached. Mm. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, it's the power of salvation, right? And I think that it was being obscured, uh, certainly by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but Latin definitely masses. by the Church of England. And yeah, what was that, Wendy? Latin masses, so the oh, Latin masses for sure in the Roman Church, yeah, and in the High Church of England, yep. they were very formal. Yep. And so a common person would feel very comfortable there, and they didn't want them to feel comfortable there. So yeah. 
So a guy who can stand up there and preach clearly, authoritatively from Scripture in the language of the people, they had no idea what to do with that. That was not, that was not done at all. Um, some people called him Volker because they just thought he should not be doing what he was doing. But he was preaching God's Word. But he wasn't doing it in the robes and in the fancy things and all the high church liturgy Candles and all that stuff. And the incense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Confessions. Yeah. He never received formal seminary training either. He did go to college, as you know, a lot of people did, but he never received a formal seminary training. He didn't even precept under anyone. <laughs> no. Not really. I mean, those early days, you know, 15, 16 after conversion for a little bit. But, yeah. He was preceptored by the, uh, the, by the Puritan literature. Exactly. Right? Yep. So once again, read the Puritan. <laughs> he read about six books a week on top of all that. That's <laughs> crazy, right? What the heck? By the time he died, he had about 12,000 books in his library. Wow. And you complain I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but what do we think? We think about his preaching. Any other <coughs> questions or thoughts we think about his preaching and why it was so powerful? Or What about this one? Do, do you have to go to seminary to be a pastor? Jesus didn't go to Whoa. <laughs> that came out very quickly. God. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, like, you can't count Jesus. Paul didn't go to seminary. <clears throat> he did. Well, he, he did. Actually, yeah. <laughs> he did. He seminary under Jesus. He seminary under Jesus, He did when he got swept up into the third heaven. It was, it yep. was very condensed. It was seminary. Yep. But what do you think? Do you have to go to seminary to be a pastor? Yeah. That's a trick question. Uh, obviously not. Yeah, obviously not. Yeah. He must have understood it once he was converted totally to like preach accurately. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have to today though? Like, could you start a church without being a pastor? Were you having some kind of a license or? Well, the unfortunate landscape of America is pretty much anybody can start well, well, a church. Joel, Joel Austin. Anybody can become nonprofit. Anybody can start. Yeah, today. You couldn't 100 years ago. Though. No. No, definitely not. And look today. at the friends that he has a license to marry their friends. Yeah. Yeah. On the internet. Yeah. yeah. Our Jewish friend married a couple of Catholics. Oof. That was his niece. And, Sounds um, like a he, joke starting. And he <laughs> said, by the power invested in me by the state of New York and the internet, I know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> And the form I filled out on the internet and I paid $19.95. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you definitely don't have to become a pastor. I mean, go to seminary itself to become a pastor. But there needs to be some sort of grounding in the theological truth and historical theology, obviously in the Bible itself and all of that stuff. That doesn't necessarily have to come through a seminary education. But that's what it's designed to do, right? I think it's very, very rare that you would meet somebody that uh, is successful and effective at the pastorate without going to seminary. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say it doesn't happen. Right. 
I think it happens more times than not that someone is a false teacher and not effective in the ministry because they didn't go to seminary. And you could tell they kind of don't have that grounding and they're kind of spinning around and coming to their own conclusions. Seminary, I, I just, I thank God for seminary a lot. It, 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 it's, it grounded me. It, it gave me a historical perspective. It, it was just tremendously helpful. So I, I'm a big proponent of seminary. If guys are like, I think I'm called to the ministry. I'm like, cool, go to seminary. Um, you know, if you can do it. Um, but it's not, it's not instant, right? It doesn't mean that that's going to be, you know, I know one or two guys that didn't go to seminary, and they're fantastic pastors. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule, right? Mm-hmm. What about, again, his, his um, preaching work ethic? Isn't that kind of crazy? 600 times before he was 20, so it was basically 600 times in three years. Right? I was trying to add up how many times I've preached. If I preached, well, I preached before we became Highlands, but not every single Sunday. So I preached every single Sunday since January of 2016, minus, minus. some stuff here or there. <laughs> right. That's not 600 times. <laughs> this was in for his first yeah. few years. It's crazy. <coughs> well, he, mu- he must have been speaking multiple times a week then to get that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. like, if you counted Wednesday nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think we could call this a sermon per se, but you know, thank you. No, they may have had two services on Sunday too. Yeah, yeah, or more than two services. Well, well I'm sure. People, yeah. Once he got, how could you hear him? Yeah, once he got cranking, he uh, probably was invited to speak all over the city as well. What do you think of all the his, you know, sixty-six different things that he was like? Okay, I'm sure he's preaching to the orphans. I'm yeah. sure he's preaching to the prostitutes and you know Very these true. people that he's trying to help. He must be speaking to them. In Very some true. Sense. Yeah, he's not going to give them anything else other than the word of God, right? Right, right. But he might he's probably giving a different sermon to the um, to the orphans than he would give to oh sure you know to the, the to the church body right yeah definitely he uh, revered preaching itself. One quote I read said, we shall not go to the pulpit or the platform to say the first thing that comes to the lip. If we speak for Jesus, we ought to speak our best. Mm. And so that really says a lot that that he put a lot of preparation, a lot of thought, and a lot of prayer into sermons. And obviously I'm a big proponent of that as well. You know, the guys that say, oh, I just get up there and Say what the Holy yeah. Spirit tells me to say. It's like, yeah. eh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of impresses me listening to you about him, you know, uh, he didn't have death by doctrine, you know, with his congregation, no. you know. Uh, but yet he preached doctrine, right? Right from the yeah, Bible. Yeah, but it was clear as it, yeah. He, that's so true. If he's got a gift to re- reach children, yeah, yeah, that, yeah that, 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 that gift just transforms, you know, right, right through. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with doctrine, but, no. but sometimes with no application. Yeah, yeah, I think he knew how to connect that bridge. Yeah, apparently he did. Between doctrine and application. Yeah, that no one else was doing, right? And he didn't just tell stories because he preached the gospel. Yeah, yep. He was also a man of tremendous adversity in a couple different areas. The first one was physical sickness. He suffered with gout really badly. He said it was like a cobra bite. One third of the last 22 years of ministry, he was out of the pulpit, sick. 
or recovering from it or trying to get back to the pulpit or resting. So he suffered tremendously with physical sickness. He also suffered with depression. Mm. Um, and it would just come over him uh, dramatically. You think like, wow, I mean, the guy speaks to tens of thousands of people. He's the most popular preacher in the world, but yet he had some very, very dark nights of the soul. One of them was um, uh, as a result of a tragedy. Um, in October 19, 1856, he preached at the music hall in Royal Surrey Gardens uh, because it was a special event and that was the biggest place that he could preach. Someone in the back of the theater yelled fire mm -hmm. and panic ensued and there was a stampede and seven people were killed, mm -hmm. um, basically right in front of him. And he was trying to control this and trying to get people to the exit, but seven people were killed and many more were injured. And he said this, perhaps no soul went so far to the burning furnace of insanity and yet came away unharmed. But he sunk into a huge depression after that, just watching people die like that. And he struggled with that for years and years and years. And so he fought depression uh, very valiantly uh, through, his, uh, through his years. And he said this, Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm away its sweet discursings, or with its sweet discursings. As well fight with the mist <coughs> as with this shapeless, un undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Man, it's just like, mm, those words. <laughs> the iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in, in its gloomy prison, needs a heavenly hand to push it back. That's the depth of those words. And he, uh, he wrote about it elsewhere. This is a little book by him called The Greatest Fight in the World. This was one of his final writings. Uh, but he talked about it as well. Um, and he's talking about the power of the word, just like he was saying there, that it has to be opened by a, a, a heavenly hand. He says, how often, how often we have seen the word made effectual for consolation. It is, as one brother expressed in prayer, a difficult thing to deal with broken hearts. What a fool I felt myself to be when trying to bring forth a prisoner out of the giant's despair castle. You can see his influence there from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. How hard is it to persuade despondency to hope? How I've tried to trap my game by every art known to me. But when almost in my grasp, the creature has burrowed another hole. I had dug him out of 20 already, and if he, he had to begin again. The convicted sinner uses all kinds of arguments to prove that he cannot be saved. The inventions of despair are as many as the devices of self-confidence. There is no letting light into the dark cellar of doubt, except through the window of the word of God. There's a quote for you. Amen. There's no letting light into the dark cellar of doubt except through the window of the word of God. Within scripture, there's a balm for every wound, a salve for every sore. Oh, the wondrous power in the scripture to create a soul of hope within the ribs of despair and to bring eternal light into the darkness which has made a long midnight in the inmost soul. Often have we tried the word of the Lord as the cup of consolation and it has never failed to cheer the despondent. We know what we say for we have witnessed the blessed facts. The scriptures of truth, applied by the Holy Spirit, 
have brought peace and joy to those who sat in darkness in the valley of the shadow of death. He was a firm believer. You can see his, his regard for scripture coming through there, just in the midst of deep, deep depression. And he's like, I don't have magic words. And it's God's words that are going to work through the Holy Spirit, and that's the only way uh, that that will happen. So he struggled with depression. And you can hear, even in the way that he wrote about that, he was a man very acquainted with depression, and just the words that he used. Um, of, yeah. all, of all the, um, the preachers in... in uh, how many suffer from depression? I mean, you mentioned depression quite a few. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, when we get to Edwards too, or you know, we didn't even get to. Did we get to Brainerd? Did we do Brainerd? <laughs> we did Brainerd. Okay, good. Brainerd was yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That word depression, that diagnosis has come up quite often. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, there are days, and I'll be honest. There are days where you just feel. The weight. You just feel the weight, the responsibility of ministry. You feel the weight of preaching the word. You feel the weight of wading through some of these tragic situations with your sheep. Just drain. You see, I, I, this week, this week was a rough week. I mean, rough week really because of the news. I mean, there was another mm -hmm. pastor that created this terrible, terrible sexual assault. The SBC report came out, so you see all of that terrible sexual assault happening. And you have the shooting and... and um, Oh, oh, yeah. oh, the Valde and, and uh, the one that gosh, did the confession in front of his congress. Yes. It, it, oh, I read that. Man, that, when that started to roll, that got worse and worse and worse. Then the victim got up. That I'm, I couldn't believe I'm that. I'm super proud of her, whoever she is. So just to finish the story for you well, guys who don't know what happened, you can look it up on the news. But there was a pastor who was 65 years old, and he was stepping down to ministry because it came to light that he had had an adulterous affair. 20 years ago, but he stayed in ministry the whole time, so he's 65, so so he was basically confessing this, asking for forgiveness, and saying that he was going to step down. He gets the standing ovation from the church because they're just like, oh, Mr. Humility, thank you so much. The woman who he had the affair with was there. Somehow she found out that he was going to confess. She rushes the stage with her husband, grabs the microphone, and says this was not adultery. This was... This was rape. She was 16. I was 16 years old. 16 and it continued for nine more years into her 20s. It, 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 it was just it. like, holy cow. What a story. I mean, it just rolled, man. It was like a train. But, just, oh my gosh, that woman just, that she did that was just, man, unbelievable courage and, wow. Did you see that? So, yeah, so then the whole congregation turned against him and was like, is this true? And. It's, it, and you think about that, like as, as jacked up as that situation is, like you think about like, well, that man, you know, served as pastor for 30 years and now he's going to live out the rest of his days in complete shame. Mm -hmm. It's like that, there's a part of you that's still, hurt. I mean, part of you is still kind of pastors together. It's still tragic. It's sin. It's awful. It's horrendous. It should never have happened. But it, it all kind of contributes, I think, to what Spurgeon was saying in that quote, too. Like, all those situations that I'm involved in, you know, you feel the weight of that in one way or another. So, he struggled with depression. Um, he also struggled with controversy. As I mentioned, he was not well-liked by the preachers that were there. Uh, there was a theological controversy called the downgrade controversy in the Baptist denomination. And that was major, major um, first-order doctrines 
These were not little things. He said the atonement was being scouted. I'm not sure what scouted meant in 1887. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is downgraded or degraded in an, in, to an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction, and the resurrection is turned into a myth. He said Germany was made unbelieving by her preachers, and England is following in her tracks. So he, had no, he, he saw the denomination, the Baptist denomination, get watering all these critical doctrines down, and he, he stood up to them, and it cost him big time. Um, his, he, at the end of his life, this was really the end of his life, his wife Susanna wrote that this downgrade controversy killed him. This was the thing that finally just, just took him. He died in the midst of controversy. But, um, he was, uh, again, like we said in the beginning, he was a, a man of his time, but yet he was a stranger to his time. His theology was seen as unpleasant and old-fashioned in the 1800s. Mm. Remember, Darwin just started, right? One author put it this way. Hadn't science moved beyond <coughs> miracles, myths, and superstitions criticizing Spurgeon? So this was in the papers all day. Every day. Had not science moved beyond miracles, myths, and superstitions? Could concepts like sin, judgment, and hell, and eternal damnation still be held? The earth was no longer believed to be 6,000 years old in 1800-something, right? Natural selection, not supernatural selection, determined the destiny of mankind. To many, Spurgeon's theology, theology sounded like a fossil from a bygone age, a thing best studied or pitied. So he's preaching gospel. Tens of thousands of people are coming to see him. So he's this celebrity guy, but yet then he's the target for all of this slander, really. And so and the, he, was, he was the victim of public slander, like people writing about him in the newspapers. I think there's some of the things in here. Uh, 7.58. Yeah, this was in the Essex Standard in 1855. His style was that of the vulgar, colloquial, varied by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly, and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. I'm sure he wasn't actually, you know, saying like R-rated stories from the pulpit, but it was probably anything that he spoke in a conversational style from the pulpit at that time was probably seen as as coarse, right? Um, it really makes you wonder how how did the high preachers who were, you know, praised otherwise, yeah. like how were they speaking about the gospel in this? Exactly. You know, oh, flowery, like ephemeral, like yeah. uh, and not common, not common sense. Like that seems to be what they're talking about. It's like, like you said, he's speaking to the people, yeah. And they're not used to that because yeah. the other preachers speak how in a way that no one can understand, and like a convoluted, you know. I, I, don't know. I wonder if I don't it was know how like, they... yeah. I wonder if it was more like the Pharisees, you know, like the the dead mm -hmm. teaching. Well, I think too. Uh, you know, it's it's like many of them just want to. Um, Go through the forms of the service and not necessarily teach anything. Okay. You know. So not so. dig to the heart of it. Right. Or, okay. Well, plus like the the liturgy, right? Like, right. It's the same thing all the time. Right. It's the same thing all the time. That's why you say the things church. you do. You know. Sure. You come in, you sing a sin here, you say a hail mary here. <laughs> yeah. You say an our Father there, and then yep. you move on. The per preacher says a few words that nobody listens to, and then you're done. 
you know, yep. he says some mumble some stuff and, yep. and you know, then you say another prayer and you're out of there. Yep. And everybody heads for the door as quick as possible. Yep. Start the weekend. <laughs> yep. Start the weekend. Yeah. I mean that's the way it was in the, the Catholic yeah. church I grew up in. Yeah. And don't forget too, he was in England and what was happening in the South, right? The Civil War in the United States. So he's over in England then uh, speaking against slavery in the United States. So now the entire southern half of the United States now hates his guts too. They publicly burned his books in the South and they said if he ever stepped foot in America, he would find himself hung just like some of the slaves were. The Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists said that. The Southern Baptists wow. said that. Boy, he suffered reproach. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he counted himself worthy for doing that. He knew that he would struggle. He knew that He knew that was part of the deal. Mm -hmm. What do we think about this? Perseverance amidst, amidst uh, physical sickness, depression, controversy, public slander. Even among his friends, he had difficulties because some thought he was too Calvinistic and others thought he was not <laughs> Calvinistic enough. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's just... I mean, you would think anybody like Charles Spurgeon, he wouldn't have to struggle physically, especially not mentally, like Charles Spurgeon. Can Christians be depressed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You are human. Yeah. 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 But we still need to stand up for what's right, for, for what's biblical. Yeah. What's in the Bible, you know, what's, what's true. Exactly. So he was not, the downgrade controversy was not a little controversy, and right. he was ready to die on that hill. Yeah. Justifiably so. He lived outside the camp. He lived outside the camp for sure. Yeah. Endured the public reproach and scorn. Yeah. 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 Um, he knew when to stand and fight. And as his wife says, probably cost him his life because it was just it was just overwhelming. That last that last battle. But he also stood on scripture. Yep. So he knew scripture. It's amazing how religion eats their own. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen that in Matthew the last couple of weeks, right? And, mm -hmm. Now this week they're going to try and finish him off, but it's not going to work. All right, one last thing. His theology, which Ken just kind of took us to, oh yeah, only three points there. He was very uh, Calvinistic, very Reformed, which is kind of odd for a Baptist. I think the majority of Baptists are not. Mm -hmm. um, There's Reformed Baptists. Oh, they're Reformed Baptists for sure, yeah. but mainline Baptists probably not so much. There has been a resurgence... Um, you know, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, perhaps you've heard of it. Um, they were, <laughs> there was a, a resurgence in the early uh, 1990s, and that kind of spread to all the others. So it is, there's definitely a Reformed um, leaning in the Baptist, but I still don't think it's the majority of it. Um, but he, uh, this affected his perseverance through all of these things. If we read a little bit from... Um, what he thought about. Piper said this, he saw depression as the design of God for the good of his ministry and the glory of Christ with an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God in all affliction. More than anything else, this kept him from caving into affliction. So if we think about that, there's a direct tie-in between his theology, his Calvinistic theology, and how he endured suffering. Because if you boil Calvinistic theology down, if you just want to say it's the top level, it is all about the sovereignty of God, the ultimate sovereignty of God in all things, right? And he clung to that. 
He saw depression as the design of God for the good of his ministry and the glory of Christ with an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God. More than anything else, this kept him from caving into adversity. Which it's like, it's like a, a lot of Christians, the temptation is when we experience adversity is to think, God, where are you? Mm-hmm. Right? Like David did in the Psalms. Right. Where are you? How long, O oh Lord? You know, where have you gone? Right? Which is, it's fine to have those moments. But um, Spurgeon brought himself back. But most of the time David ended his song of praise. He did. For God. Yeah. Yep. How wonderful God was. Yep. He said this. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I've had an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him. Love that imagery. Nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and their quantity. He's saying like God's just, yeah, he's allowing this little bit of adversity in my life and suffering, but he's just giving me exactly what is in his design, or allowing what is exactly in his design. He said, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. (laughs) He says, the greatest thing God can give us is our health. But there's one greater thing, sickness. He says, if some men knew... If some, if some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? And one more. I'm afraid not really. that, Yeah, right. It's not really crazy. Right. I'm afraid that all the grace I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. He says, yeah, all the good times I've had and easy times, it could fit on the head of a penny. He says, but the good that I've received from my sorrows, my pains, my griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. It helps help understand. What kind of worldview is that? <laughs> helps you to understand others and relate to others, too, and maybe perhaps connect and build some of those bridges that he built. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he never did woe is me. No. No. Nope. I'm, I'm sure he had his moments. Yeah. He probably didn't write about them, but yeah. But he continued to, to do function. Yeah. He, he, he continued with 66 different organizations. And oh, yeah. So, so even in his depression, he'd just didn't curl up in a ball and say, I'm depressed, I can't deal with this. Yeah. He continued to yeah. persevere and, and create. But you see, again, how that theology drove him and a lot of times guys that's what happens like when we when life punches us in the soul and we have those moments it's like your theology is going to make or break where you're at because if you think god's out to get you or you think god's gone or you think he's not sovereign right you're going to be miserable and we're all going to have our moments but spurgeon was just unwavering and in how his belief he in god when he lives inside me yeah exactly Really does harken back to the Puritans when we did John Bunyan, like they, you know, their ex- excerpts from Puritan writings were yeah. that, like, you should be like super ridiculously happy when God like afflicts you because it's showing that God's paying attention to you and changing you and yeah. molding you. And it's just like, oh boy, happy, you know, like he it was hard suffers to read wins, then, but you see say. how, like, yeah, it's all joy, yeah. <laughs> so, again, Spurgeon, he, he's he is clinging to that, yeah. you know, Puritan view, you know. 
lifestyle view that he got as a kid, I guess. Yeah, he was, he was anchored in it. And again, the second thing that kind of helped him through in his theology was the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, he famously said that the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. It only needs to be let loose and it will defend itself. Sword of the Spirit. Yep. Wow. So he had such confidence in Scripture. And, and that's, you know, we read it in the other book, just how he, uh, the heavenly hand opened the iron bars that kept hope prisoner. And that's what he waited on. So. Any other final thoughts? We could go on, and this is another guy that we could spend a whole semester, if you will, on. Makes you feel pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's one way we can feel, and I think it, we're all tempted to feel that way, but it also can inspire us, right? And encourage us that what he went through is, is suffering on a level that we'll probably never get to. But he was still, a very humble person. Yeah. But his, his belief in the sovereignty of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, <coughs> who God was, it carried him through. And it can God, carry us through. It's what it's been carrying believers through for thousands of years that, that God God uses every everything and all of his life experiences whether it's good or bad yeah to uh, to mold him yeah and, um, and the glory that's just so un-american we can't stand that you know it's like why why is this happening to us we pray to God instantly take this away and God's like I'm doing something here <laughs> You don't want me to take it away. Like, I'm in the middle of making you more into the image of my son. This is how I do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm working when you don't even think I'm working, you know? Yep. Um, we just automatically think something's wrong. Spurgeon didn't think anything was wrong. <coughs> he just endured it for the glory of God. Mr. Spurge. Uh, yeah, there's plenty, plenty of things to read uh, from Mr. Spurgeon. If you want a really good biography, I was looking for it, and it's one of my several books that I lent out and never got back. But uh, Dollamore did a fantastic biography on Spurgeon. If you ever wanted to read about him, um, he's a very good biographer. He did one on Spurgeon. He did one on Whitfield, I think, too. Which I, I realized I wanted to say. It's kind of silly that I'm saying this now when we have like four, five, six weeks left of this. Um, Read biographies. Like, find the biographies. They're so good for your soul. And that's, what, that's why Piper started this whole thing, is find the biographies and read them. Read this book. Read the Dalimore Spurgeon. Read about Whitfield. Read about Edwards. All that stuff. You know, some, they benefit our souls as well. And they read like novels, too. So sometimes you're like reading stuff, you're like, mm. But it, it reads like a novel. It's a different kind of read. So, Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, this man. It sounds so trite to just say thank you for Charles Spurgeon, but Lord, we realize that uh, he is still impacting people today. Uh, we have seminaries named after him and parts of seminaries and whole libraries full of his writings. And, and uh, we have access to his writings, which we're so thankful for, and, and quotes and everything and study Bibles. And so we just pray that you will... Lord, help us to have a little bit of that mindset to glean from him these encouragements to live for you today. Um, Lord, through adversity, through uh, depression, through controversy, through physical sickness, uh, but holding to your sovereignty and holding to the word of God as supreme. 
Help us, Lord, as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I do have a side note. One of my study Bibles that I use regularly is a Charles Spurgeon. It's a Charles Spurgeon CSB. Just in, you know, like whenever you're reading a passage, it actually shows you if you ever preached on that passage. And he preached on just about every word.